This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the High Hopes Podcast. High Hopes. It's a bunch of baseball nerds talking about the Philadelphia Phillies on Radio.com and Sports Radio 94 WIP. of High Hopes Podcast and uh, a little extended yo there, Jack, because we got a big guest today. We do. I would say that was a, a bit, you know, that was a pretty big yo for the state of baseball. Like, I feel like that should have been a, a yo that's well, reserved okay, for... hold on, hold on. There's a very yeah, good point, Please Jack. redo. Right, so that, well, that yo was for Ruben Amaro Jr. Let me give you a yo for the state of baseball. Yo! What is happening? What are we doing, Jack? That is my yo for the state of baseball. So that's that's your more serious yo. That's, that's your my serious yo. That's my serious yeah. That, yo. That's when you I mean, mean in business. In reality, it should be like a yo. Can I do it? I feel like that on the inside. That's kind of how I feel when it comes to major league baseball right now. Let's dive right into it. Coming up in a little bit, Ruben tomorrow, Junior is going to join us, and we just recorded it a few minutes ago. It is um. It's awesome. Like, Ruben's really honest. I think you're really going to enjoy it. We had a lot of fun talking to him. Uh, we'll get to that in a few minutes, but uh, we obviously have to start quickly because we have not talked in a couple weeks here, Jack, and, man, it just sucks being a baseball man right now. Like, it is um, – where are you at, obviously, right now? Oh! 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 oh. Is that is that down. is that rep- is that representative of the state of baseball? Yeah, I think we keep that in. Normally, it's kind of get it out. We're gonna keep it in. Knock for those who don't know. Knock my mic on the ground, and I'm looking at the pool of seltzer that is currently sitting on the rug in my basement right now because I knocked my seltzer over too. You drink um, seltzer, and your last oh, name yeah. seltzer? Oh, buddy, I drink a lot of seltzer. That Big seems seltzer. weird, right? Is that is that yeah. weird? It's a little weird. It's a little weird, you know. It's like DeAndre Swift is fast, you know. It's like that kind of thing where you kind of are what your name is. Well, it's not like I go. It's not like I go to the bathroom and say I'm on the fritz. (laughs) Oh, you know. I'm more. uh, I care more about my name than you do. uh, I mean, your name's your name is pretty normal. It's good. I guess. Well, it's it's more normal in in society. You know, it's it's one of those names. Um, um, where are you at? I mean, uh, for you know, those who don't know, we're recording May 28th, uh, the night of May 28th, Thursday night. We're at the point where uh, most recent news, Major League Baseball submits a proposal to the players, a sliding scale where the highest paid players lose the most and the you know, lower payers. It's basically clearly a divide and conquer attempt by the owners. And as expected, it was met with pure disdain and hatred from the Players Association. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are very nervous that we might not have baseball. Well, the good thing is that I never liked baseball, so, <laughs> yeah, so this, sure, this, sure. This doesn't re- this doesn't really matter that. to me. Yeah. Um, I yeah, know, buddy. Man. I'm I just worry about you. I you, you go back and forth. Like I'll I'll wake up in the morning and I'll, I'll be like at work and I'm looking on Twitter and I'll see a tweet from Jack with like 
just something to the event like the, this morning tweeting I don't I don't like I never like baseball anyway or or baseball's going to screw this up we're not going to baseball I mean like I it feels like you've you've spiraled at times here well that's just what I do I, and let me just get this out of the way right now baseball's never coming back ever uh he's ooh, ooh, just I like, like this like this Bryce Harper's never coming here baseball yeah, is never Never, ever, ever coming back. It is done. Get it out of your head. Uh, he he wants to play on the West Coast. Um, he doesn't like East Coast stuff. What are the other great things about Bryce? Um, um, John Middleton can't close. John Middleton. What does Hector Neris and John Middleton have in common? <laughs> they both they both can't close. Uh, what does what does John Middleton, Rob Manford, and Hector Neris have in common? They all can't close. Um, but I am uh, I'm sad. I just I just wanted to go away. I'm in the, I'm in, the, in this mindset of just make it stop. Um, I'm honestly like the saddest part about this whole thing is like I've stopped thinking about baseball. Like it's not that I I obviously still think about it, but like I, I've I've gotten so used to life without baseball that like. I don't know. I'm starting to go outside. I'm, I'm reading a book now. Um, wow! Look at you. I, I talk about talk about really maturing. What the hell, baseball? You yeah. forced Jack to read. I don't want to read. Actually, I'm reading. I'm reading the Roy Halladay book by Todd Zalecki. I'm halfway okay, through so it. You're still. You're still in baseball. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Sure am. So, like, I just think. I just don't understand why the players are being punished for no one showing up at the gates. And I that's my my one big sticking point is why are the play, players being blamed for no fans being there? They are the owners. Like they don't have to make boatloads of money every single year. They're going to make it back. These players have like the every major league baseball player has a shelf life. It's mm-hmm. it, whether it's whether it's 4 years, 5 years, 10 years, 20 years uh, or hopefully for Bryce 20 years. They have a shelf life. They they come and go. Teams last forever. And it's like it's like you're going to make the money back. And honestly, this I know this is going to sound surprising coming from me. I would take I would take no baseball this year for these players to fully dig in and get what they think deserve what they deserve. Like that's how that's how fed up I am with with where I'm at with these owners because I think the players are such on the right side here that if they don't if they don't want to play baseball this year I think that is totally fine and that's gonna hurt and it would be awful if there's no baseball this year but that's where I'm at like I I'm so on their side that if they feel necessary to to make their point. Uh, and kind of jumpstart the the 2020 2022 negotiations and just do it now like just do it and 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 fight for what it's worth because it's just they should be playing baseball right now and the fact that they're not is because of the owners it's not because of the players it's because of the owners so yeah, I, I don't like thinking about it because it just annoys me more than anything um, and the whole freaking, you know they're, they're they're cutting all these minor league teams out, and these like a thousand minor leaguers are being being released, and it's just like, dude, like I said before, but like Williamsport's connection to Philadelphia is because of the Williamsport Crosscutters, like like these small towns live for their summer baseball teams, you know those guys coming in and and being ingrained in the community, and they can look back and say, hey, you know I went to Williamsport, uh, then I went to Lakewood, Clearwater, like they 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 go through the journey. And it's not just for the Phillies, it's for all these teams, you know. They start in these small towns and work their way up. But those small towns, like, 
the fact that baseball doesn't care about the, uh, growing the game in a, in a grassroots kind of way, I think is just stupid. And I think they're they're cutting out a lot of baseball. It's not helping grow the game. Like they're not growing the game by cutting all these minor league players. They're just they're just hurting the game. They're 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 making the pool smaller. The major league baseball draft this year is five rounds. It's less than the NFL. It was forty rounds last year. Like they're doing everything they can to 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 make the pool smaller and and cut off some watchers and, and people that want to grow with the game. Like if you're in Greensboro, North Carolina, you get to watch a minor league baseball team. You don't you can't go anywhere to see a major league baseball team. All you have is the minor leagues. I just think it's so stupid. It's also stupid. It's also bad. And listen. <sighs> I think it'll come back. I, I'm still optimistic. I think they'd be too stupid not to come back. But I just, I just want it to be over. Yeah, I think you hit on it. Uh, for quickly on the minor leaguers thing, I mean it's outrageous. I mean, you look at John Fisher, the owner of the Oakland Athletics. He's worth two point one billion, I believe, or two point oh one billion, or something like that. And it would cost him one million dollars to keep his minor leaguers employed for the rest of the season. A million dollars, a million dollars out of two point one billion. Um, it's it's a travesty. Um, totally agree with your stance. I, I don't know if I go so far as to say I, I wholeheartedly support the players sitting out the year, but I'm not going to be mad at the players. I, I'm I'm at the point where I'm just I'm mad at everybody. I, I just to be this tone deaf, to be fighting in public over this, to have this. I, I mean, it's just I'm embarrassed as a baseball fan. I'm embarrassed. I mean, they had an opportunity to um, be a white knight. To you know, when when America needed it the most to be the first sport back to be a shining beacon of normalcy and hope for so many people, 40 plus million out of work, all that stuff. And instead we got millionaires and billionaires fighting about money. I mean, it is a travesty. It's a joke. I think it looks, it's such a bad look for baseball. It's embarrassing as someone whose favorite sport is baseball. I'm embarrassed by it. Like I'm the whole thing upsets me. Um, but I, I do agree with your, your general tenant of what you're saying that that i i think the owners are just i mean i i it make honestly it makes me sick like i get sick to my stomach with with these people who defend the owners like i can't like i can't fathom it like it doesn't make any sense to me i don't know how you could possibly see what's happening here and be on their side it's crazy to me and like the idea that they're negotiating in good faith they're not they're not negotiating in good faith they're undercutting at every turn they're offering proposals that they know are not going to get accepted that aren't in good faith they just want to look like the good guy in the court of public opinion it is it is so infuriating and jack i think the point you made that i think is the single best point on this issue that i have not heard made enough and i i, I just i so agree with you the idea that an owner can own a team for 30 years, for 40, 50 years. Their family can own it for hundreds of years in perpetuity. And players have two years, five years, seven years, 12 years, if they're lucky, 15 years or whatever to make their money, to make their peak earning potential, the thing they do best in this world. That's it. That's what they have. That's their whole career. You own the team forever if you want to. And your team has increased in value year after year after year after year. Record profits for 17 years, whatever. It's a joke. I, I'm I'm so upset, Jack. I'm with you. I, at the heart of what you're saying, I, I couldn't be more with you. I think I think the owners, it's it's it, it major league baseball has embarrassed itself in this, and I think the owners are primarily responsible for it. Yeah, and I don't get like I, I don't know, like I see Twitter and the see responses and stuff talking about the players and it's like 
it's like, oh, start a GoFundMe for Bryce because he's playing for seven and a half million this year or whatever. And it's like, dude, mm-hmm. <laughs> the owners are worth billions. Like I understand, and, and the whole millionaires versus billionaires thing, I get it. Um, but it's not even about Bryce. Like it, it's more about it's. What is it? Sixty percent of players make a million dollars or less. Sixty-five percent of Major League Baseball players make a million dollars or less. Right, and then when it comes down to that, their their pay is getting slashed, and the 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 thing that 65%, I was sixty-five percent. I mean, that's right. Well, more than than half. I mean, let's be real here. It's two thirds of baseball makes a million dollars or less. They're not all these superstar millionaire guys. Yeah, and the thing that I was so worried about with the first proposal from the owners was it, it kind of, and it's going to end up being this anyway, but they're, they're heading towards the star players, like cutting out the smaller players and making them look bad. So it's going to turn the whole players union on itself. Like the, they're going to. They tried to do with that proposal very clearly. They're trying to divide and conquer. They're trying to do what the NFL did and get the rank and file guys to support it and the big stars not to be able to have enough of a voice to stop that. Yeah. But it's so, not working because, as they should have known, the players' union is the strongest union in America, and these guys are not turning on each other. They're galvanized. They're going to fight for each other. That's why they're the Major League Baseball Players' Union. Yep. So, yeah. So we wait. But, yeah. like, I, I don't know. We still and have I agree a cu- with you. Just to be clear, I do think they will figure it out. I, I think that in the end, there is too much money to be lost, too much – um, you know, just too much credibility, integrity, all that type of stuff that is to be lost here in this moment in time. But it's just embarrassing that it's played out this way. Yes. And uh, like they're, they've already squandered the opportunity. It feels like they've squandered the opportunity to be the first sport back. Um, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen anymore. It seems like hockey and basketball are kind of be the first ones back. And that's just dumb. Like, <laughs> that's just like poor. It's just all poor leadership on Rob Manfred's part. Like, he should have been from the get go being like, listen, we got to figure this out. Like, and he we shouldn't have a- let this all happen in public. I mean, like, all of them. Like, he should have put his foot down immediately. The first leak. And it, granted, I'm sure he's behind some of them. He has been a disaster in this. But the moment that anything leaks, he should have been like, all 30 owners in a room be like, yo. Like on a Zoom call, whatever they do, like this can't happen. Like, what are you doing? You are hurting our sport. Like he, Manfred has done a, a horrendous job handling this. Well, I also don't think the owners care about baseball. I don't think they care about public opinion, and all they care about is is having money in their pocket. Yeah, so, I agree. so like they don't like honestly like they. I don't think the owner. I I don't think the owners care if baseball comes back this year because I think that. They are so bottom line that they they probably make more money or keep most of their money if if uh, this doesn't I think come they out. Definitely do. I think they definitely do. Yeah. So when they have when they have that option, they, they there's a chance that they just take that option. Uh, but either way, like if they, if the players don't get screwed now, they're gonna get screwed in free agency, and then they're gonna get screwed in the 2022 CBA. Like this is all heading towards a work stoppage. It feels like I don't know. I'm over it. Whatever. Yeah, you know what? I'm over it too. I don't think people even want to hear us talk about it anymore. We, you know our thoughts. You know our points. We're done with it. Jack, just let's know, get to just something. know, just know that we're sad. Just know just, that we're sad. We are so sad, and that uh, for the purposes of of the powers that we have here, baseball's never coming back. It's never happening again. We'll leave it at that. Uh, let's get to something a lot more fun. As uh, Ruben tomorrow took some time, Jack took some time with us. 
Uh, we had a lot of fun talking, a lot of Roy Halladay, obviously, with uh, the 10-year anniversary of the perfect game on Friday of this week. Um, a lot of time talking Halladay. We talked a little bit about the current situation and a whole lot more. So here it is. Ruben Amaro Jr. joining us earlier. And joining us now, it is our distinct pleasure. And uh, let me just say flat out, I think in my opinion, no offense to some of the other guests we've had, the biggest guest that we have ever had on the High Ops podcast, former general manager of the Philadelphia Phillies, former player for the Phillies, a Philly guy, one and only, Mr. Ruben Amaro Jr. Ruben, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. That's very high praise. I don't know if I can live up to it. <laughs> I, hey, I'm just speaking facts here, Ruben. It's true, a <laughs> yeah, Philly guy yeah. through and through. We'll get to more of that later. But um, first of all, like we said, thank you for taking some time to talk to Jack and I. We know that the High Hopes listeners have, have long wanted us to get you on. So this is exciting for, for us and for the listeners. Yeah, Ruben, um, this, this is the podcast for the disease Phillies fans by disease Phillies fans. You know, literally, that is our slogan. <laughs> that, that, is, that is our slogan. Nothing, nothing wrong with being a disease Philly fan. I've been one for uh, my entire life. So. Yeah, born and raised Northeast Philly, Philly's own. Um, Ruben, we're going to get into some some other stuff later, but we wanted to start with some Roy Halladay talk. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, tomorrow uh, we're recording this on May twenty eighth, May twenty ninth, the ten year anniversary of the perfect game that he threw. Uh, the documentary coming out on E sixty and perfect. So there's a lot to get into with Roy Halladay. Um, so let's just start at the top. Uh, obviously, you were the general manager of the team taking over for Gillick after 08. Um, you find yourself in the opportunity that you can actually trade for Roy Halladay. Can you take us through, and I know you had an opportunity to get him in 09, and then heading into 10, you get him. Can you take us through what it was like to have the opportunity to get Halladay and weighing the the risk-reward of what it would take to get him and and just the process of bringing Roy Halladay to Philly? So I lived in the uh, era when uh, when I was playing uh, in Philadelphia in 92, 93, uh, and then 96, 97, 98, when, uh, when pitching was king, right? Atlanta was the team, and, uh, and they had ex- an extraordinary run of, what is it, 14 division championships. Um, and it was really all about pitching. And so in my mind, as I grew in baseball, uh, that was the same thought process that I had. It was all about pitching and trying to get the best starting pitching you could possibly get because I'll give you an opportunity to win every single year. So uh, with that in mind, having known and seen Roy Halladay operate as an assistant GM, watching him operate as a, um, as a young man and becoming who he was whilst we were playing him in Clearwater, we saw him a lot in Dunedin. Um, you know, there's a lot to be uh, uh, to be impressed by, and then I started learning about the legend, what he was uh, as far as work ethic, what he was as a teammate, and those sorts of things. And then, you know, seeing that Toronto was not in a position to um, to really be able to give them kind of what it wanted, which is to to be on a championship caliber club, I thought oh, this would be a great opportunity to maybe get him. And I think one of the very first meetings I had with David Montgomery was um, about acquiring certain players. And I remember uh, t- talking to David at the time very, very early in my tenure that if there was one player that we would, could acquire, um, that player would be Roy Halladay. Now, obviously, wow. um, we didn't know that was going to happen, but that was the one that was kind of my, you know, uh, great Castriato calls it my white whale, which was probably mm-hmm. the truth. And, um, and as we got uh, 
into the 2009 season, we knew we needed some uh, some higher level uh, starting pitching. Uh, we knew we had a good club. We knew that we were a championship caliber club, but we needed more pitching. And uh, and we ended up, you know, really pushing the pushing the envelope on the pitching on the pitching end and looking for that top of the rotation or close to top of the rotation guy. And Roy Halladay was our target, um, or three or four other guys that we were out there uh, looking at who were, you know, top of the rotation type talent. And uh, clearly we thought that we had an opportunity to get Roy. Um, and I had, you know, several conversations with J.P. Ricciardi at the time. Couldn't get to the finish line. Um, and then we ended up, uh, you know, breaking left and picking up uh, Cliff Lee. And it was uh, a deal that we thought was, went very, very well for us. And uh, obviously had a lot of success with that move. Um, and not giving up a ton of that talent. It was a lot of talent, but didn't didn't really bite us in the butt later until um, until maybe later on. And and uh, you know Carrasco ended up being a, a a quality pitcher, but it didn't happen until much 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 further down the road. And then um, when we had the opportunity to get him in the off season um, uh, to to get Roy in the off season, we felt like uh, that was that was the right thing to do. Uh, Anthopoulos became the uh, GM. In uh, in Toronto, we had some discussions at the, at the GM meetings. We kicked around a lot of possibilities. We did try to re-sign uh, um, Cliff Lee to a longer-term deal. I think we were uncomfortable with the amount of money that he was asking for at the time, and uh, we had an opportunity to go get uh, to Roy, and, and and we did. One of the premises, unfortunately, about you know doing that was that we kept dumping you know talent out of our system, and so we tried to replenish it. Uh, knowing that we would have to probably trade Cliff to get him. Um, David Montgomery and I talked about it quite a bit. Unfortunately, it was one of those decisions that probably should not have been made, <laughs> and we would have loved to have kept both of them. But um, but we needed to replenish our organization, and uh, and we ended up getting three very, very talented young men, but who were much, much further away from the major leagues than probably we should have made um, and in the players that we got in that deal. And, um, obviously, Roy came to us and we got him, and that was important to us and important to the organization. But uh, but it was at some cost, you know. It was at some cost, and and uh, uh, unfortunately didn't you know totally turn out the way we wanted it to turn out. But um, but still, we got Roy, and and uh, we felt like we had in in him um, probably one of the best, if not the best, starting pitchers in baseball. So you had mentioned that like Roy was your rear white whale, and I mean, understandably so. I mean, he was probably the best pitcher of his generation. Like, how how hard was it not to just give the prospects up in two thousand nine and, and get them there? Like, how were you devastated when you weren't able to acquire him in two thousand nine? No, we had you know, like I said, we were had parallel I had parallel discussions at the time with Mark Shapiro in Cleveland. Um, we knew we wanted to get. Um, we wanted to get Roy, but at the time, um, I think JP was pretty much set on the, the, the level of talent being really, really high. We, we just could not give up both of our best players. In my mind, if I recall correctly, it was, you know, it was Kyle Drabeck and, uh, and Dominic Brown. And they were literally our two best prospects that we had in our organization, pitching and, and position wise, and we would have to give them, give up more. And so um, I wasn't prepared to do that. And uh, the talent that we ended up giving up in the Lee deal versus the talent we would have had to give up in the Roy deal, um, I think, was 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 just disproportionate. And so, I mean, it ended up being a very good deal for us. Could have pitched extraordinarily well. I couldn't imagine that 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 Roy would even have pitched as well as as the way Cliff did because he was absolutely lights out for us and he pitched extraordinarily well in the, you know, the playoffs and the World Series and all that. 
Um, so I wasn't really disappointed. I, I guess, you know, you just have to move forward, right? He, uh, he was the guy I wanted, but, um, but you know, the thought process and some of the discussions and, you know, we thought maybe we could, we could still acquire him. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the end all. He didn't end up getting moved. So we had an opportunity to maybe get him later on, which we sort uh, fortunately for us, we did. Uh, going back to, to moving again forward in time to, to 2010 or, or heading into 2010, you just talked about it seems like you have a little regret about the decision to trade Cliff Lee after trading for Halliday. And I know that that's I think that's something for a lot of Phillies fans that in the moment we were surprised by, you know, especially coming off the World Series, what Cliff had done. And look, obviously Cliff Lee came back. You know, Cliff Lee loved it here, clearly. Um, can you just a little a little more on that that regret you had? Do you so in hindsight, do you think you you could have or or should have held on to Lee instead of trading him? Well, I think in retrospect, obviously with the fact that um with the talent that we got back, um I probably wish we should have stayed with him. Um but uh, it was understandable the thought process that we had. I think you know you can't you don't make deals in a vacuum, and we had sucked out so much talent from our system during the course of that time, trying to continue to win, which was my goal, um, and which isn't as sexy to do now nowadays. I don't know, I don't know, how, many, I don't know how many teams um, are actually trying to win. I don't know that that's <laughs> necessarily the case with every club, but yeah, I agree. Um, I, I always, I always, always thought that the, the job of the GM was try to put on the best product you could possibly put on the field to try to win. But that said, um, you know, to me, uh, had we kept, had we held on to him at that time, you know, it would have been great, but it did open up some opportunities to get guys like Roy Oswalt and, and, uh, you know, we ended up, uh, you know, we had Pedro Martinez aboard and stuff like that. But um, it gave us opportunity to do some other things. And, and, uh, and obviously with our success and our continued success, we ended up signing him back anyway. So, I mean, in retrospect, yes, we would love to have kept him. Uh, and I think, and, and then secondarily, I think that it would have been, um, it would have behooved us to, to, uh, to maybe get prospects that were closer to the major leagues. Problem with that was that, um, had we allowed two or three or five days to to happen, um, and the expectation then would have been for our fan base that uh, we would have had both guys on board, and we almost had to try to make the move and make it seem like it was a three-way deal because the expectation of the fan would have been like, "What? I can't, you know, we, this guy's supposed to be, we're supposed to have the greatest rotation in the world, and we have to have Cliff Lee." Um, and the reality of it is we, we, um, we really didn't want to try to replenish our system with some three, three quality guys who were too far away from the, from the major leagues and were very, very talented kids. But, you know, with, talent, with young talent, you just never know whether they're going to get there. And, and unfortunately, they didn't, really, they didn't really pan out for us. It did give us a great nickname, though, the Monster. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good nickname <laughs> for the guy. So, so Rube, what was uh, what was your first impression of Doc? You know, he comes here in 2010. You obviously knew the legend of of Doc by that point, but what, actually getting to know him, what was what was your first impression of Doc? Uh, pretty, very, very serious, um, very humble, very quiet. Went about his business. I think that he didn't want to ruffle feathers. He knew that we were basically a veteran club. I think in, in Toronto, there were times when he had to take some people under his wing and to teach them some things. But we had one of those clubs where he could just do his work, uh, lead by example, um, go about his business and try to prepare as well as he possibly could and hope that, you know, people next to him and underneath him and, uh, you know, people working with him would, would notice. And 
one of those guys who benefited, benefited from it was Kyle Kendrick, who ended up having a pretty damn good career, and I think a lot of it. Um, and he wasn't nearly as talented as Roy, but had some success for us and won a ton of games. I think he won something like 50 games for us, and uh, and a lot of it was because he he you know listened to Roy and tried to mimic a lot of things that he did and tried to work as hard as he could, and uh, and I think he rubbed off on some people in in a pretty special way. The thing that I that I take from Roy Halladay is the accountability. I've never been around an athlete who is more accountable um, for his performance than Roy Halladay. He would text me uh, towards the end of his career when he was struggling, I think physically, that he was not, he was, he, he would apologize to me for not holding up his end of the bargain. Wow. Because he knew that, um, because he knew that we were trying to do everything we possibly could to win. And, you know, for a for an athlete of that stature, a person of that stature to have done that to me, I mean, I was like shocked when I got these texts. He would pitch a, like a, a game, a kind of a mediocre game. He'd throw five innings or five and a third. And he'd, he'd get knocked around a little bit in, in 12. And, and he would send me texts saying, Ruben, I'm not holding up my end of the bargain. I'm sorry. I'm letting you down. I'm letting the team down. I'm like, Roy. You're the last person on the planet wow. that needs to that needs to send me any kind of a, any kind of apology because I know that the time and the effort I mean from five o'clock in the morning during spring training to the end of the day, um, and then the work and the you know preparedness that he had with him physically and mentally I mean just just ridiculous off the charts to the point where there's nothing that he could do I mean he, for me he walked on water and so um, I was so fortunate to have you know, have him on our club and to have him, uh, you know, impact us the way he did. You just mentioned about like Doc's, Doc's intensity. I always wonder this. Who did you, who do you think was more intense, Chase or Doc? Great call. Um, uh, 1A and 1 and 1A. <laughs> <laughs> um, as far as their will to win, I think it's neck and neck. Um, as far as their accountability, neck and neck. I mean, I can't, you know, they're two of the two of the most. Uh, I mean, if you were going to dream up having an athlete in Philadelphia, those would be the two guys you want to have. I mean, not, no disrespect to the other guys. There was we had tremendous talent. Jimmy Rollins was outstanding. Ryan Howard was the best offensive player in baseball for about five years. Um, you know, Cole Hamels was outstanding. I mean, Cliff Lee was excellent for us at times. I mean. There are so many players and so many people that uh, we can talk about, Jason Worth, Shane Victorino, et cetera. It's chooch. But the reality of it is when you talk about talent and desire to win and at all costs and to do it in a way that, um, that they did it to prepare and to be the best they could possibly be, I don't, can't imagine there are, better, there are two better athletes on, in, in our organization ever. Yeah, and like you said, what a great point. Two more perfect athletes for this city. I mean, you grew up here. You know, I mean, that's that's what we care about here. We're blue collar. We care about work ethic, you know, running every ball and all that stuff, and they were the, the perfect exemplifications of that. Um, all right, Ruben, tomorrow, as we mentioned at the top, is the 10-year the anniversary of the perfect game. Only 23 perfect games in the history of baseball. You could argue 24 if, if Jim Joyce hadn't uh, – you know, screwed Galarraga out of one. But right. 23 yep. in the history of baseball, you you see that happen on your team. And then later in the year, the guy throws a no-hitter in the playoffs. Can you talk a little bit about your your motions in those moments? Watching Halliday, this guy you brought to Philly, be 
literally the best you can be in the sport. What what was it like to be there for that and to watch these just highest of the high type of moments play out? Yeah, well, I was the assistant GM when Eric Melton threw his no-hitter. I believe he threw a no-hitter. And then um, Noah threw a no-hitter for us, and I was assistant GM then. And I had tears running down my face both times. But I happened to be in the stands in uh, in Miami when uh, Roy threw his uh, perfect game in Miami on a pretty warm night and uh, in a night where there weren't very many fans until later on. And, uh, I well, that sounds like most concert. Marlins games. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And there's a concert going on, so the people start filtering in late. But, um, you know, I was there with my brother, uh, my half-brother, Ruben Andres, who was living down there. My dad lived down there. My dad didn't go to that game. I think he was working or something. Anyway, he um, – Roy is pitching, and it's probably like the third or fourth inning, and I was up in the uh, – I was up in the box and I came downstairs to sit. And fortunately, uh, I'd gotten a seat with my brother right behind the plate. We got a scout seat, which I typically don't get. I usually sit in the club box or what have you. And, and uh, we're sitting behind the plate and watching this happen. And it gets to about the fifth or sixth inning or so. And I'm starting to calculate. I look up on the board. I'm like, my goodness, a good game. It was a one nothing game, I think it was. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't know if I remember any base runners. I don't see any hits on the board. I don't know if there's any base runners. And from like, I don't know, maybe halfway through like the fifth or sixth inning, I think it was, you know, my brother and I were talking and chatting, chatting away. We, we went dead silent and we literally did not speak a word <laughs> until the very last pitch was made. And I remember That's awesome. Paulino That's coming awesome. up. I remember Paul, because we both knew what was going on. And we just sat in our seats next to each other and just watched the game. And we didn't say a word. We didn't move. No one went to the bathroom. No one got a Coke. No one got to do anything. <laughs> we, uh, we sat there and watched the game. And then when Paulino came up, I mean, I, I never squirmed so much in my life. When he stepped to the plate, Freddie Gonzalez had thrown three, I think, three straight pinch hitters at Roy just to give him a different look. And Paulino comes up, and I'm thinking to myself, we traded this guy in spring training. He gets, gets goes bounces from from the Giants in a three way and goes to the Marlins. I'm thinking to myself, this cannot happen. I gave this guy away and you know, <laughs> we made this deal, and this guy's gonna break this damn thing up. And and sure enough, Juan Castro makes a hell of a play in the hold and spins and throws him out. And I'll tell you what, man, you talk about joy and just elation. My brother and I hugging each other, crying the whole nine yards. It was a it was an amazing moment. <clears throat> I'll never forget it, and uh, and you know, and, and and even and even more extraordinary was you know then then in Cincinnati what he did in the playoffs against a team that was a playoff team and one of the best offensive teams in in the game and and for him to have done that in the very first time he'd ever pitched in a playoff game which is all he wanted to do in his entire career while he was with Toronto and never had um, for him to have done what he did. Um, and pitched the way he did against that team was just absolutely amazing. Even more amazing, I think, under the circumstances. Hey, Rube, I really have a tough time talking about 2011 Game 5, but I just I have to ask you, like, any other night, are those Abanez and, and Utley balls out? Like, do you, do you think they would have been home runs on any other night? I think that they probably would. I think there was a little wind that, uh, that held those balls up, and uh, they were really, really deflating. Um, I think both those balls were hit well. Um, I thought they both had chances to go out of the ballpark. And in 
And even after the last pitch was made, I still believed that we were going to win that game. <laughs> so did we. So did but, we. Um, but, and it was disappointing. And it was disappointing in a lot of ways. Shoot, it was probably just the biggest, one of the biggest disappointments, not just for the fans, but for my career. Because, you know, have we gone on, gone pretty well, gone and, and, and done what we thought we could do. We could do. Uh, I, I may not be talking to you guys right now. I might still have my job. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but the reality of it is that um, – we, uh, we, you know, we we ran into a club that uh, just seemed to play better and the ball rolled better for them. And that, that one game, anytime you're in a playoff situation, you know, there's an opportunity to lose. And Carpenter pitched his ass off, and and how they pitched extraordinarily well. But uh, you know, somebody's got to win a baseball game, and and you know, they went on and won it. They yeah, win it obviously. It was crushing. Yeah, I just can't. It's it's so crazy because I'm reading the doc book by Todd Zlecki that recently came out, and just him and Chris Carpenter being like best friends, and then for that thing to happen, uh, just it, it's almost unbelievable. So, Rube, last thing on doc, do you have a favorite personal doc story that you, you could share with us? Well, I think the fact that he um, two two things. I mean, I, we talked about already the fact that he would text me after games. I mean, I'd never been with an athlete who would do anything like that, and never had, and may may never again uh, about his com- accountability. I think um, secondarily, one of the things that um, that people don't know much about once he was finished pitching for us, and I had told Doc that I wanted. Um, I told him flat out that as long as I was a GM or part of the organization, that he would have a job with us in whatever capacity he wanted to. I thought he would be a great mentor with the things that he went through and the uh, the things that he studied and the way he got back and the the mental toughness that he, um, that he portrayed and had during the course of his career. And he came to us, I think it was the, I believe it was the, Spring training of 2014, we had a series of meetings prior. During the course of spring training, we would like have a we had half day workouts, and then we would bring. Uh, unfortunately for the staff, I would bring the staff for later meetings just to talk about each phase of our game, offensively, defensively, outfield, infield, and pitching. And I would invite Roy back for some of this pitching stuff that just to have our guys pick his brain and for him to. And I just I said, Roy, just please be there. And, he, and, and, and talk about your thought process and how we can help some of these young guys that we're now coming through our system to build their uh, ability to, to compete at the major league level. And um, it was being conducted by Bob McClure, the pitching, the pitching uh, module, and, uh, and Roy was as quiet as he was when he worked he was really, really like jibber jabbering. I mean, he was loving being able to express some of the thought process, some of the things that he learned, ways to motivate and those sorts of things that people don't know anything about, but he was just absolutely extraordinary in those meetings and just being able to listen to him. I mean, you could hear a pin drop when he spoke and he was very open to doing that. Uh, He helped us with, uh, with the pitching. Uh, I think one of the off seasons we had a, uh, we had a uh, you know, pitching camp that we brought some of our best pitching prospects in, and he went and talked to them and gave them Harvey's book and, and mentored them in a lot of ways. And he was just absolutely extraordinary, and people don't know that much, uh, those, those parts. Of it. But he wanted to teach. He really wanted it. He had a passion for it, and it's unfortunate that uh, people are not able to, to learn from him and to, uh, and to be able to 
um, to be around him because he would have been an unbelievable and was an unbelievable resource for us. Ruben Amaro Jr., thank you so much for joining us. Last one for me, uh, and again, thank you for the time. Um, we really can't tell you how much we appreciate it. I know our listeners appreciate it. Uh, we'd be remiss if we uh, have you on and don't mention what's going on right now and, and kind of get your opinion on this. Obviously, a lot of acrimony, a lot of uh, animosity between Major League Baseball and the players right now, this whole situation. Will there be baseball? Won't there be baseball? Um, what is your take on this whole situation right now? And are you at all concerned that we might not have a baseball season? Well, I am concerned about it, obviously, but I do think that there, that cooler heads will prevail. Listen, negotiations are not always uh, happy-go-lucky. They can be very acrimonious. I've thrown a lot of phones in my day and still gotten deals done. <laughs> um, and, and uh, you know, listen, it, it's an emotional uh, situation. We've never been in this situation. No one has ever seen anything the likes of this ever. And so this is all new territory. And the fact that they have a, you know, basic agreement, the negotiation coming up, um, you know, there's a whole lot of factors that are involved here. And, and uh, you know, who, who, who gets the leverage? Who's got leverage? Who doesn't have leverage? Who, you know, um, what is equitable? And I think that there's some very smart people on both sides of the coin here. Um, and I do believe um, if you were going to, I don't know, I guess my, my, my percentage on this, I think I'm at 60% that they'll still get something done. I don't think it's going to be without some difficulty and some give and take and give on both sides. Um, my, my, uh, my view on this is the owners are going to lose a lot of money. It's a matter of like how much money do they want to lose and still play baseball. Um, and the players are going to probably lose a lot of money. And it's, a, it's a matter of whether they're going to want to, what is it they want, they want to lose quote unquote lose. Um, and what's going to be equitable. I think uh, we're, we're hopeful that they can get the yes, because uh, I think we need baseball. Um, you know, I grew up in baseball. We want to have sport. We want to, you know, move forward. We want to, we want to deal with this uh, virus and this pandemic in a, in a, in a different way and to focus on some other things and some joy. Um, but, you know, I think it's going to have to be safety first. And I think it's going to have to be a, a deal where, where at the end of the day, no one's really happy, but it got, it gets done. Because, and then, and, and the rest of the world can be happy because uh, we need baseball back. So, um, I do think it's going to happen. Uh, I think it's not going to be without some some difficulty. I would like to see it be more quietly done because I yes. do not want to. Yes. I, do not, I do not like public opinion to be involved in this. And Especially I like when it's millionaires to... versus billionaires and 40 million people are out of work. It just is not a good look. It isn't a good look. Um, there's no question about that. And I wish there was a way to do it in a more, you know, I think most of the deals that get done between the union and, and the commissioner's office, I think it is a, a major league baseball. I think they're done quietly. I do think that there is a mutual respect here uh, between uh, Rob Manfred and Tony Clark. And I do hope that, uh, and, and to all the officers that each side has, I just think that, um, I just think that it's going to be a difficult, uh, it's a difficult endeavor, but I think ultimately I, I think we can get something done, but uh but again, I mean, listen, we're talking about an unprecedented time. We talked about this, uh, you know, prior. I mean, we've never been in this situation ever again. We hope that we never can have to be in this situation ever again and that, and that we can get past it and move forward. And I hope baseball, uh, you know, adds to the joy of, of uh, getting through this process that's been really, really difficult for everyone. 
Hey, Rube, uh, last one for me, and I, I have to ask this. So back in 2012, how come you guys weren't scouting a six foot one right-hander that threw 82, oh, 82 to 84? I had one of the best cutters in the state, and I went 2-0 in the high school playoffs. Where were the Phillies at? I, Ruben, I'm so sorry for my co-host. I don't know if I can apologize enough. We, we, we try to do the best we can. Uh, our scouts you were did. pretty You didn't good, miss out. Just, you didn't miss we didn't, out. We, we uh we we missed on some guys. I I have a feeling maybe we missed on you, but I, listen, that might that might be one of the reasons why I'm you know talking to you guys now too. I mean, you know, dude, we didn't we didn't we 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 left a couple stones unturned. I would see that's a problem. Listen, I would say so. I mean, so what if I stopped playing college baseball my sophomore year? You could have had me first. God, another miss, another swing and a miss. I'm sorry. <laughs> another reason for the Don't fans to get on me. Up, <laughs> Don't beat yourself up about that one. Uh, well, Ruben, thank you again. Seriously, we, we can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And um, it's really it's been a joy to talk to you. And, um, you know, we're following your work and, and excited to see what you're doing. And um, just thank you. We, we can't tell you how much we appreciate it. You've been very generous with your time. Thanks, Ruben. Hey, and no problem, James, Jack. We're, we're happy to do it and, uh, anytime. Well, that was fun. I love Ruben. He was great, Jack. Here's uh, he, and you know, look, I've openly been critical of Ruben in the past as a general manager and all that, but um, I thought he was really honest with us. And I mean, when he was talking about openly saying that that he has some regrets about how the the trading cliff leaped, I mean, that is for me forever been one of my longest questions as a Philadelphia Phillies fan: is why the hell did you trade Cliff Lee away? What were you thinking? We could add Holiday and Lee the year earlier. Uh, wh- why? Why, 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 why? And even forgetting the fact that none of those guys turned into anything they got back from Seattle. Um, I thought it was really cool and interesting to hear Ruben kind of acknowledge some of those same feelings. And, and you could tell that he kind of regretted how they went about it. And um, just across the board, I thought he was great. I thought it was really good. I thought it was fun. Yeah, he told some fun holiday stories. Um, and yeah, really just... The game story was amazing. Yeah, I, I think that... I mean, obviously, we knew the legend of, of Roy Halladay, but being able to hear from someone who was with him pretty much day-to-day for his entire Phillies career and um, that it kind of pursued him for a long time, he's his white whale, as he as he would say, uh, just hearing some doc stories. And I think that, you know, I, I, I hope the, the listeners appreciate the good old doc stories because I feel like doc stories have become legendary. Um, and I'm so sad that he's gone. And I tell you what, like the, the documentary is going to be a tough one to get through tomorrow night. Um, oh, just because just like doc meant, doc meant a lot to me. Uh, and he's like the perfect guy for uh, like talk about two perfect guys to grow up idolizing in the city. I mean, uh, for, for baseball players like Utley and and Halliday, um, just like two grinders um so just told some fun stories and i think he i think the main takeaway from the interview is that he deeply regretted um not pursuing me in high school uh he clearly (laughs) he clearly saw that as a as a very big mistake so i appreciate him writing he didn't really write his wrong he didn't admit that he was wrong but i mean if tyler cloyd could have done it i could have done it i like that take it's that's a hard one to argue with right there the tyler cloyd side of it um, all right. Well, before we get out of here, speaking of holiday, we got to talk to, to Ruben a little bit about it. What um, what are your just as general to start? What's kind of your your feel about you know this holiday doc coming out tomorrow? Just the ten year anniversary, the perfect game. Where we're kind of at with Roy right now? Well, 
<laughs> I, I still I still think it's kind of crazy where I was for the perfect game. So uh, for those who don't know, I was a Boy Scout back in the day, and we were getting ready. Like we were preparing to go on a big canoe trip or whatever. So to kind of get our stamina or whatever to to you know be ready to for long canoe trips. I was on the bank of the Delaware River uh, for the for the holiday perfect game. I was laying in a tent. Yeah, I was laying in a tent. Uh, just, I think I was. I think I. I think I don't think I saw any of it. Uh, and I didn't listen to any of it. I kind of just got off the river and got in my tent, checked my phone, and it was like Roy Halliday is doing what? And I just remember I, I found the found the final out, and I was like, "That's crazy." So uh, that was my that's my Halliday perfect game uh, memories. Also, game one of the the Stanley Cup Finals in 2010. So that was magical. Um, but yeah, it's going to be tough. And, you know, Brandy Halliday has just been unbelievable through this whole thing. What a rock. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And she's just, she's just doing it. She's, she, she, she's not letting the story, you know, take its own, like take its own path. She's, she's trying to control it. And that's, that's great. I mean, and I think what she says about how no one's perfect because like Roy Halliday was for those for those on the outside, like Roy Halladay was perfect. I mean, he was an unbelievable pitcher, worked his ass off, had uh, a family, never had off the field issues, uh, was greatness personified, and he looked like what perfection was. And I think she wants to tell a story of no one's perfect, everyone has struggles. Don't be afraid to admit that you have struggles. Um, and I, I just. I think her message is really powerful, and I, I think tomorrow is going to be really, really tough to get through. I mean, the whole question of do you think he was an addict? I mean, the, I almost started, you know, welling up just yeah, watching the, the trailer. trailer. I agree. So, so I, listen, no one's perfect, and it's yeah, I, I'm very sad Roy's gone. Uh, I think he would have done great in his post career, and I'm both not looking forward to watching and looking forward to watching. Yeah, I feel the same way. And I think the point you make is is so true, is that um, I, I think that Brandy Halliday, realizing that she had an opportunity through telling her husband's story in this way to potentially help other people who are going through similar things that Roy went through, is, um, I mean, that takes strength, man. Like, that takes a... A level of toughness that that neither, uh, at least me for sure, and I'm guessing both of us can't comprehend because we haven't been through that type of thing. Um, I'm so impressed with her. I'm so impressed with with how she's handled this, the strength, the fortitude that she has shown, and and again to do this, to be able to go and talk about it like that publicly in a um, in this type of situation, to, to seemingly it appears be so candid and so honest in 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 order to help other people who might be facing these things. Um, is really impressive. And um, back to what you're saying, you know, um, for me and Halliday, uh, you know, I I remember the perfect game. I caught the last three innings live because I heard what was going on. I was able to get to a TV and and watch the last three innings. And I think with the the and and Ruben pointed this out, and I, and I mean, I think it's pretty clear. Like the the no hitter is even more impressive. He did it in a playoff game against a much better team, and he only allowed one base runner. It's not like it was, it was so close to being a perfect game. We all forget that. Like, um, but I think the other cool thing about the playoff no hitter, at least for me, is that you know, um, it's one of those things where, you know, when you and I watch every Phillies game, 
for the most part, you know, a 150 out of 162 or whatever, and, and start to finish or whatever. Like, but a lot of people don't get the opportunity to watch you know, every game start to finish. But when it's the playoffs, you do. You know, you're there for it. You're watching it. And like, I think, you know, for me at least, I've never been to see a no hitter live. I wasn't watching the TV when Mulholland did it. I didn't see uh, the first few innings of the combined one. I saw some of Cole's, but that Roy Halladay hitter is literally no hitter is literally the only no hitter in my life that I have watched from the first pitch to the last. That I've never missed a pitch of any no hitter. That's the only one I've ever seen start to finish because of the situation, because I'm a Phillies fan and all that. Um, and I just think that's really unique. It's a really cool thing. And I, and I do think it's one of the most for him to, for the first time, get to the playoffs and have that type of, of performance where, and it what you know, you watching it, you like, you felt it quickly. You're like, Oh buddy, like this guy's got his stuff today. Like this is peak holiday. Um, and it was magical. It was magical to watch. So. Oh dude. I mean the no, I, I, I still think he had better stuff for the no hitter than the perfect game. And a hundred percent. It's the I mean, best it, like, game I've ever watched pitched, in my opinion. Like a single game that I've watched pitched. That's the best game I've ever seen anyone throw. Well, and that and that Reds team was just better offensively than that Marlins team. Um, yeah, I, I watched every every pitch of it. It was, uh, I mean, it was four o'clock, so I was home yeah, or was five o'clock. Yeah, yeah, it was an early. So start. I was home from high school or whatever, and yeah, I. It was just like <laughs> the ninth inning. I was just saying to myself, is he really going to throw a no-hitter in his first playoff start? Because if you, if you remember, like, the, the lead-up to that was just like, oh, my God, Roy Halladay's first playoff start. Like, he's probably, this is all he's been working for for his whole entire career was finally getting to the playoffs and finally be able to break through and have a moment in the playoffs. And it's like, really? This guy's going to go out and throw a no-hitter in his first it, try? It's so silly. It's so unbelievable. He is, he's awesome. So, uh, yeah, the no-hitter was crazy. I... I don't know whatever happened to Jay Bruce, and I hope he had a horrible career. <laughs> but the fact that that wasn't called strike. I think strike, people forget that. I think people forget Jay Bruce, the only person to reach base against Reality in that game. Pretty also, Vado, Vado talking about how. Uh, so, Vado, I guess in the fourth, uh, he stepped out, and he kept stepping out, and even like a 1 1 count, he stepped out on, on Roy. And Roy came up to him the next year at the All-Star game and said, I wanted to walk to home plate and punch you in the throat, which awesome. which I thought was amazing. So, uh, yeah, Roy was an insane, insane competitor. And listen, it, it uh, Todd Zalecki's book on Roy Halladay is awesome. I don't ever read, ever, but I have some time. And uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's called Doc, and it's available now. And if you ever want to know more about Roy and his whole story, it's just a really, really interesting and good book. Speaking of which, one of my favorite Roy factoids, and I'm sure uh, this is one that would be up your alley. Jack, do you know who Roy Halladay struck out more than any other batter he ever faced? Struck out one more batter than? Wait, what was that? Who, who, which batter did Roy Halladay strike out the most in his major league career? Uh, Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. Yeah, Derek Jeter's quoted in the book like <laughs> just how awful he was against yeah, against he, Roy. Isn't that a wild? I mean, that's wild. Like that's a, a wild. I know. I know. Uh, that's that's up your brand's alley. Yes. So well, didn't he have one season where he uh, struck out more guys than he walked? Actually, that probably happened a lot. There was some. There's some oh, ridiculous. Yeah, 
struck out way more. Yeah, well, obviously. No, there was something. Oh, he had more. He had, he had two nineteen and 30, 30 walks in his twenty ten season. Oh uh, no no no! I messed it up. I messed it up. He had very more, clearly because most pitchers I know. strike out. More. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Except for me in college, but yeah. uh, he made more. He had more starts than walks in the season. Wow, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's that was an amazing fact. Right? I know he beat the Yankees five times in one year, which is pretty wild. Also, um, one of three pitchers in Major League Baseball history uh, to win a Cy Young, uh, win a Cy Young, and start an All Star game in both the American and National League, which is a pretty cool uh, factor. I think he's won he, six six to win a Cy Young in both leagues. So. And he still has the most complete games in baseball since 2010. Yeah, wasn't that wild? <laughs> Just wild. Yeah, he's the best. And uh, I think I had one more. I don't know. There's so many crazy Roy Halladay stats. I'm actually I'm so glad he was the first ballot Hall of Famer. Like, because because you would have thought he would have got held back because of the win totals and that stuff. But like, he was the best pitcher of the generation. Like after after Pedro, it was Halladay, right? I mean, like Kershaw sure had a had a little run there in 2014 ish. Like Kershaw Verlander, but like Halliday, Halliday from two thousand three to eleven was was just the best pitcher in baseball, and it wasn't even really close. Like Verlander kind of had a little moment and towards the the back end, and obviously he's continued on from now. But like there was no better pitcher in baseball, and he looked like a Hall of Famer. And you know sometimes Hall of Fame comes down to eye test, and he crushed the eye test. Yeah. I'm so with you. Crush the eye just and crush the numbers. And who knows if he wasn't pitching in Toronto all those years, you know, what kind of numbers he could have had. Not pitching in that AL East in the heyday of the AL East. Not pitching for a bad Blue Jays team for the majority of his career. Um, yeah, those are the kinds of things you never know. But like you said before, got finally got the opportunity to pitch in the playoffs and, you know, grabbed it and, and ran with it in a way no one have, uh, you know, ever saw. Any other final thoughts on Holiday before we, uh, we get out of here, Fritzy? No. But I still, but oh, 34. Oh, I'm sure you have a final thought about something else, right? Yes, yes. But 34 is still my still my number. I still love the number 34. And I still contest that if I was given the number 34 when I got to Bloomsburg and not number 29, I may be in the big leagues. But right? you know. yeah, I think it's a fair contention, my friend. Yes, I would agree. So that's that's it. I'm, I'm both not looking forward to and looking forward to tomorrow night. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, uh, you know, on the pod and all that. But um, everyone, you know, I'm sure it's worth the time. And uh, I'm sure it'll be a tough watch, but a, uh, a really good watch as well. All right, Fritzy, what else you got? All right, so first thing, fresh batch of high hops is available starting tomorrow at Four Fingers Brewing Company. Come on out. Try to talk Phillies with my dad. It's always an interesting conversation because he doesn't know anything about the Phillies. <laughs> but he, he could try. Um, but seriously, there's been a couple of high, high hopes listeners coming out the last couple weekends. So we really, really appreciate that. Um, and there's a fresh batch of high hops just waiting for you to, to come pick up. Uh, I don't know if you saw, James, but on mo- starting Monday, NBC Sports Phillies rerunning the entire 08 playoff run, which oh, I, I saw, buddy. I cannot wait for it. I mean, yeah, I remember. Cool I don't really. I don't really remember that. Like, I remember most of it, but like just being able to watch, you know, game two or game three of the Brewers and Dodgers series and remembering all that stuff is going to be a lot of fun. Um, so I can't wait for that. And then my final final thought is I've officially found my guy in the MLB draft. And oh, yes, oh, oh, buddy, 
Yes, I, of course, love... Um, I still love Ed Howard, and I still love Garrett Mitchell, and uh, if they are there at... or I, Ed Howard will probably be there, but Garrett Mitchell is, is probably not going to be there, but if he's there, I'd take him. Anyway, my guy is Nick Bitsko, who is from Central Bucks East, and he is a local guy. I don't know if you know this, James, but I own Central Bucks East. Oh, it, did you? Oh, my God. Best pitcher performance of my life was against Central wow. Bucks East. 2011... You know, went eight innings, one run, just pure, utter dominance. So, um, but yeah, so so he's from Central Bucks East, and he throws 97, and he's already got a plus curveball and good feel for a changeup. Fastball explodes like Scherzer's. Like, you know how Scherzer has that extra giddy-up? Well, I oh, think yeah. he, he has that too. And I just, for the Phillies to be able to draft Bitsko, um, you know, he reclassified from from 2021 for the 2020 draft class um and in 2021 he was projected to be like a a top three pick and you get him a year later or a year earlier and a year younger at 17 versus 18 i just think it's such a no-brainer for them to kind of be all in on him at 15 and from everything like from everything i've been hearing through the grapevine um he's not gonna make it past 15 so if he's on the board there and a couple of the guys are off the board, like a Garrett Crochet, Crochet, sorry, Garrett Crochet, which is just an awful name. But uh, if if he's not there and Mitchell's not there, Bits goes, I think Bits goes going to be the pick. So uh, it, I, it's nice to see that the Phillies have the same eye for talent as I do. Um, but I'm all in on Nick Bitsko. Like I, I legitimately, I know this is going to sound ridiculous but i think he's gonna be a hall of famer and stop stop man what ridiculous thing to say i read honestly i read the first half of the of the doc book and i was like this this is bitsko oh my god all right we're done i'm done that's it like like i know you i know you probably think i'm kidding but i'm not kidding at all jack the reason i'm out is because i know you're not kidding i I, I can't i can't You got anything else? Nope. That's it. Thank thank goodness, because after that one, I got to be done. Um, Thank you to Ruben Amaro Jr. uh, for coming on and being so generous with his time. We were hoping for like 10 minutes with Ruben. He gave us 30, so that was really cool. So thank you to him uh, for that. And um, like we, we continue to say, there will never be baseball. So, you know. Yeah, baseball's baseball. baseball's going to San Francisco. He's one, only wants to play out west. <laughs> Smash Mouth is tweeting about baseball going to San Francisco. Just you know, that's where we're at. All right, uh, it's been real again. Thank you to Ruben Amaro Jr. We'll be back soon, and uh, thank you. We we love High Hopes Nation. We miss you guys. We love you, and uh, thanks for coming on as always with us. So until then, he's friends. It's awesome. See you later.